Welcome to A Year of Great Books. I'm Laura Miller, Slate's Books and Culture columnist. It's time to choose the last book we're going to be reading in the series. Joining us this time is John Dickerson, who you know as the political director of CBS News and the host of Face the Nation, but who Slate Plus members probably knew first as the magazine's chief political correspondent and a panelist on the Slate Political Gab Fest. John, thanks for joining us at what must be a crazy time for you. It is a crazy time. Thank you so much, Laura. I'm so happy to have the light at the end of the tunnel be uh, <laughs> this <laughs> after the crazy time ends. So it's uh, you're doing me uh, a great thing. So thank you. Um, we have a short list of four books that we know you're eager to read, and we'll talk about them in a little bit. But first, tell me, are you able to read any fiction at all during a year like this? I mean, I, I try to because it's, it keeps me um, sane and it's you know, I was a English major in college, and so it's my first love. It's what I thought I would be doing. Um, it returns me to s- some sort of past before everything got so hectic. But because I also do the Whistle Stop podcast, which is an intensively, uh, and there's a lot of reading because it's historical and there are periods that I don't know so well, I spend a lot of my non-work time reading, you know, histories. So usually I can just kind of get snatches of uh, reading done. I did get all the Light We Cannot See read this season. But fiction, unfortunately, takes a big hit during the campaign's year. I can imagine. So you were an English major, and I know that you're a bit of a Trollope fan because we were talking about that earlier. What's your taste in classics? Do you get a chance to read them much anymore? Do you focus on contemporary fiction? I mean, do you have any favorites? I kind of jump around, again, because it reminds me of... um, you know, back when things were a little more simple. I I like going back to the Victorian novels if I can. The first class, English class I took in college was on Victorian literature. Um, and I was so happy to see that you read Barchester Towers. But then I had a crushing moment of sadness when I went back and looked at my copy of Barchester Towers from 1987. And it's marked up all the way through, all kinds of marginalia, letters that I assume correspond to groupings I was doing for a paper that I wrote at the time. And I don't remember the story at all. And it was so sad because clearly I read it very closely and yet I don't remember what happened. So, but anyway, I try and read, you know, I also try and fill the gaps. Like I'd never read A Tale of Two Cities when everybody was talking about the way we live now, when it seemed like everybody had read it and had um, total familiarity <laughs> with it, I went back and tried to re yeah. to reread that. Um, my my concentration, to the extent that I had one, was um, was Joseph Conrad, and then I do try and read some contemporary fiction, but not. I end up reading sort of popular contemporary fiction, not. Mm-hmm contemporary fiction that's too difficult um, because what ends up happening is I read three pages, fall asleep, and then <laughs> lose the lose the plot. I feel like I'm losing the plot a lot in these days on a number of fronts. <laughs> well, I think we can all identify with that. And this past in this past session, Laura Bennett and I read Jorge Luis Borges' Ficciones, which was kind of perfect for this very unreal time that we live in, where you just can't believe the things that are happening are actually happening. And it's also very short, because we are all so distracted. It's very short pieces. But for after the election, I think that what we all want is that kind of book that you can just sort of sink into, like a big 
world of a book that we can just walk right out of this world and into. And I think you might identify with that desire. Uh, totally. I want because there's a kind of meditation once you really are in past like the first half hour, you really want to, you know, just be deep in a book. And, and, and I don't get to do that. So it will be both the content and also the process that'll be I'm so looking forward to. Okay. Let me interrupt there. Um, I'm going to jump out of the car. Okay. But you can keep talking. <laughs> yeah, I'm in Union Station on my way up to actually up to New York for rehearsals for election night. So oh, that's uh, going to be exciting. This early. Yeah. All right. I'm heading into Union Station now. <laughs> People are looking at me as if I am. Because you should see the getup that I have going. I have earphones in. I have a microphone <laughs> I'm going to go into the Amtrak lounge alright guys hold on a sec okay I am now in a conference room okay well we have four indisputable meaty world of their own classics for you as your as your sort of holiday after what has to have been one of the most bizarre and I'm sure draining election seasons you've ever worked on. Um, the first one is a kind of a repeat because it came so very close to beating out Barchester Towers a couple of sessions ago that we know that our members are really keen to read it. And that is Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. This is, um, you know, a book that is about adultery and disaster and the noxious effects of reading too many sentimental novels and bourgeois life in provincial France and all of the dreams and all of the frustrations that come with that. And it's also, of course, famous for being one of the most exquisitely written novels of all time. It's not a huge book, but it is an enveloping book, partly because Flaubert is so great at recreating the very particular worlds that his characters live in. And it's also a narrative that is probably one of the formative narratives of, of modern literature uh, of an adulterous wife and the consequences of her, her transgression. So that's number one. The next book is War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. It's sweeping. It's epic. It's about five Russian families, all more or less in the aristocracy. They're different loves and marriages and careers and involvement in the Napoleonic Wars. It deals with every problem that Russian thinkers had at the time. Really more, it was a historical novel. Tolstoy wrote it about 50 years later than the events described, but it deals with everything that was on Tolstoy's mind, including famously some long sort of essayistic passages on how we should look at history. But it is also just, as I found out because I read it fairly late in life myself, a total page turner. It's got, a, a, you know, at least a half dozen amazing, engaging characters, and you just have to know what happens to them. Our third choice is another Russian, another towering classic, what some people consider perhaps the greatest novel of all time, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is uh, about three brothers. Their dad is 
just kind of a reprobate. He's sort of the original deadbeat dad. And the three brothers have three very different personalities. They're um, by two, two different wives. One, Dimitri, is a sensualist, and he and his father wind up competing over the same femme fatale. Um, the second brother, Ivan, is a rationalist and an atheist, and he's constantly struggling against what he sees as the sort of darkness and superstition of Russian life, but also is dogged by the despair that comes with rationalism. So he's a very compelling character for many readers of the 20th century. And the last character, the younger brother, is a kind of idealized, almost saintly character who's a novice to become a monk. And there is fighting over an inheritance and over women, and it's just big and deep and a novel that of all people, this always astonishes me, the philosopher Wittgenstein claimed to have read more times than he could count, which is a recommendation you could just take to the bank. Um, <laughs> wonderful, sweeping, fantastic book. And last but not least, Our Mutual Friend, Charles Dickens's last novel, um, his last completed novel. This is a, a book that is very rich in the atmosphere of London. If what you like about Dickens is his portrayal of London, this might be the ultimate version of that, even more than David Copperfield and Oliver Twist. It's all about the Thames. It's about the Golden Dustman, a, a man who made his fortune pulling garbage out of the Thames and out of London in general. Uh, all of the characters in the novel find ways to pull junk out of the Thames and make a living off of it, including, in some cases, dead bodies. So this has got a slightly ghoulish or, or uh, gloomy element to it. Um, but the Golden Dustman's fortune is this fantastical thing that his servants wind up inheriting when his heir dies under mysterious circumstances, drowned again in the Thames. And we it's the story of this fortune and who will get it, whether these these two former servants who then try to become, um, you know, kind of move up a class now that they're rich and the various sort of gossipy society people that they meet and their lovely ward and their secretary with his mysterious past. I mean, it's just your classic completely inhalable Dickens novel, uh, which I um, would recommend to anyone who wants to escape the garbage dredging of our current moment. Those are the four choices. John, are you familiar with any of these books already? So the, what I love about that list is that it re represents um, – I mean, Dickens is exactly – that's why I read Dickens uh, or and have read it more recently is just to kind of fall back into the cushion and comfortable descriptions of London. And then you have the two Russian novels, which represent the big black hole in my reading history. I, I don't know whether they were ever assigned. They must have been, and then I didn't read them. But then I bought them thinking I would read them and still haven't. I don't feel like I should be able to admit that, but there I have done it. And then Madame Bovary, I was assigned it, read half of it, reread <laughs> half of it twice, and it's wonderful and it's great. And it, but it's I, I always read it at the wrong time. Um, one year I was reading it, and then um, I don't know for some reason in the middle I switched to uh, Vanity Fair and the st story of Becky Sharp, and and then I then I finished that instead. So I'm 
Um, I'm really excited to finish <laughs> any of these three or even right. start them for that yeah. matter. Yeah, I think that, you know, the Russians have developed this sort of daunting reputation. But the reason why people love these books so much is, as I said, my, my friend Sally was the one who said, you really should read War and Peace. You know, I was like bemoaning as you did this 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 black hole in my reading history. And she said, it's just a pleasure to read, you know. It's it's like an epic page turner, and you don't you just don't need to put all of this, um, you know, weight on it. And Dostoevsky definitely is more, you know, he he has this sort of, he, you know, weightiness in that he he wants to deal with all of these serious issues, but he never ever lets that overwhelm the drama of what's going on in this family, and. Um, the intensity of that. So, you know, they seem more intimidating than I think they really are. And, and you build, you can build up a complex about certain books, where you think, oh, you know, I got to do that, I got to do that. And the more you feel that way about it, the less likely you are to read right. it. <laughs> but then you read it, and you're like, oh, this is a delight, which is what happened to me with with War and Peace. Okay, well, it sounds like we're both pretty excited about these four books. I am dying to read any one of them, especially with Slate Plus members for our our farewell tour of the Year of Great Books. And I'm incredibly excited, too. It's on the other end of this election. <laughs> um, I can't wait, and I can't wait to talk about it with you. All right. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks so much, Laura. I, I really am looking forward <laughs> to it. And um, take care, and I'll uh, talk to you on the, on the other side. Okay. Hang in there. <laughs> take care. Bye. Sure thing. Take care. Bye-bye. Now it's time for you to decide what John and I are going to read over the next two months. Go to slate.com slash greatbooks or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash year of great books and cast your vote. And then join us at the beginning of January when John and I will talk about the book you've chosen. Thanks for being with us for a year of great books. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.